What you have here is a incredibly experienced investor who's used to getting his way and an incredibly experienced CEO who's also used to getting his way, treating this investor like a shoulder mosquito. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, January 16th, and today on Media Monday, John Kelly and I discuss the activist investor gunning for a seat on Disney's board and what Bob Iger is doing about it. We also talk about the new programming changes at CNN and whether anything can be done to innovate in the world of cable news. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Monday, everybody. If it's Monday, it's Media Monday. And I'm joined, as always, by John Kelly to talk about all things media, press, journalism, and today, Disney. What's up, John? How are you? I'm good, Peter. I'm thrilled to see you. You too. We're halfway through the month of January. So if you're doing a dry January out there, stay strong. You got two more weeks. (laughs) John, I want to ask you about an interesting battle going on inside Disney right now. They're facing a battle against Nelson Pels, who's an activist investor with Disney. He's from um, an investment firm called Tryon Fund Management. And he's basically pushing for a seat on Disney's board and demanding a bunch of changes to the company, some streamlining of costs, et cetera. What exactly is this guy pushing for? And why should we pay attention to this? This is a fascinating story for a couple of reasons. First of all, Tryon owns about a a little bit less than a billion dollars taken Disney. That could go up. Disney's market cap is at its lowest point in almost a decade. So let's be generous and call it a, a a couple hundred billion dollar company owning a nine hundred million dollar stake is uh, is not material in terms of the size of the of the the stake. It, it's going to be hard to agitate for significant changes. But anyway, Pell's has a history doing this. Obviously, the famous activist campaigns are the P and G and GE, which we should definitely talk to uh, Bill about sometime. Obviously, GE is now three companies. Pell's made a mint from his 
activism in that case, or, you know, from the, the changes that he uh, agitated management for. I mean, this is the man's career. Sits on a number of boards. I think he's on the board of Wendy's. He's on the board of one of Miley's favorite companies, Madison Square Garden. Uh, as I say that, I, I now worry that my face will be chronographically scanned by James Dolan and I won't be able to attend any future Knicks games um, because of how thin-skinned that ownership group is. But here's what's fascinating to me. The conversation between Disney and Tryon started in the summer. Whenever an activist is at the gates of your company ever since the 80s, you have to engage these investors. There's no question. And Chapek, originally, in what turned out to be his weakest moment, engaged Pels. Pels' biggest gripe was the $71 million acquisition that, that Iger made of the non-news, non-sports uh, Murdoch assets from 21st Century Fox. Fast forward, Bob Chapek uh, has the worst quarter that Disney's had in, in living memory, and he gets replaced by Bob Iger, who takes a different view towards this conversation with Tryon. And this is actually sort of interesting to me from a sort of non-business, just like business psychology angle. Iger is keeping him at bay. Mid last week, Disney made an announcement. I'm sure that many listeners of the show got their Wall Street Journal alert that Susan Arnold, who had been the board chair of Disney since, I guess, around the time that Iger left, would be stepping down. And they're going to name Mark Parker as the next chairman. Parker is executive chairman of Nike. This was essentially a move to block pelts. You could argue that certainly someone who's oversees the board of an incredible consumer company like Nike is, is qualified regardless. But Iger um, made a shrewd move here to block Pels. And then apparently, according to a number of reports I read, told Pels that um, he couldn't meet with him until sort of you know mid-late January when he was returning from his voyage in the seas around New Zealand. So what you have here, to my mind at least, and maybe I'm dramatizing a little bit for show, is a incredibly experienced investor who's used to getting his way and an incredibly experienced CEO on his second tour of duty with all this power, who's also used to getting his way and knows he's got to make significant changes and has probably contemplated what they are and is treating politely, but treating this investor a little bit like a shoulder mosquito. That's the sort of dynamic that I find so appealing about all this. It's not like Logan Roy versus Adrian Brody in succession where like they had to take him seriously. They're just sort of like, oh, this fucking guy, get out of here. That's how this negotiation is starting. It seems like Chapek engaged Pels more significantly than, than Iger has to this point. And, and, and Iger is appearing um, to at least publicly draw his line in the sand. But what this gets to at a, at a broader picture, which I think we can all agree upon, and, I'm, and Iger would agree upon too, is that there are a number of strategic changes that need to be made at, at Disney. The stock price was probably for a while a, a lagging indicator of, of Disney's performance, but the company has a series of significant questions ahead of it. There's a very real question about how to manage the long-term value of, of ESPN as a, a spinoff or, or, you know, on the balance sheet of Disney. The Hulu conversation is also a tricky one that I think is getting, it's gotten really oversimplified. Everyone is recommending that Disney buy out the Brian Roberts Comcast stake in Hulu. And I think that Bob Iger probably would come to that conclusion himself too. You know, Hulu has kind of become synonymous with FX style content, but you can't have an active winning negotiation with a counterparty when the entire market and activists are telling you you have to buy something. Like that's the quickest way to get screwed in a negotiation. And then another 
element of this also, to make it about Iger for a moment, Iger left Disney at an extraordinary high watermark in terms of their creative assets, in terms of Toy Story 4 had just come out and become a multi-billion dollar proposition. The Star Wars franchise had really ever been stronger and there was a, you know, he articulated a path to, to continuing it. And that's just not the case now. Um, you know, Matt has made a strong argument for why a rethink is needed at Lucasfilms. We've also heard in the industry a lot of, you know, forthright chatter about, obviously, Lightyear was not as commercially successful as they wanted to be. John Lasseter is now at Skyhorse, the Ellison production outfit that, that Redbird is in. There's a fear that the moat around Pixar is lost. So Iger's got, like, challenges on all fronts. And a 71-year-old activist, he's at least not going to treat it like it's worth all the time in his day. It kind of feels like Peltz would have had a stronger case if Iger wasn't there. Like if he had done this with Chapek when the place felt a little rockier, he might have been able to wield uh, a sharper scalpel. Well, you know, this is the part of it where, where we do get into succession territory um, and and let, let's just do it, baby. You know, I, I think the audience that Peltz got with Chapek, you could argue, had a dynamic of experienced activist investor and relatively new mega, mega blue chip public market CEO who was going to engage and maybe take his ideas seriously in a way that Iger, who has looped many laps around this track and taken the Walt Disney Company to really what were unimaginable uh, uh, highs, he has the credibility to make his own decisions. And uh, at least at least for now, the, the size of this stake is not significant. But uh, that doesn't mean that it won't create chaos. And that doesn't mean in the crucible of Hollywood, where it's a town of news junkies, um, where people won't be talking about this breathlessly for a long time, including guys like me and you. All right, John, when we come back, I want to ask you about a different business, cable news, and how much time you spend watching Dayside CNN. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. 
Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Welcome back, everyone. John, our boy Dylan Byers, wrote a piece that went up last late last week, and he talked about this on the pod on Friday about some, some changes in leadership at NBC, but he also wrote about some lineup changes at CNN. Basically, Chris Lick, the president of CNN, semi-new president of CNN, is going to take a stable of, in my mind, really good reporters, John Berman, Kate Baldwin, Sarah Seidner, Jim Shudo, Boris Sanchez, Brianna Keeler, Dana Bash, and sort of bundle them together in the daytime, which is basically, what, like 9 to 4 p.m. They call that day side in cable news. At least they did at CNN when I worked there. They're going to basically do big, like, three-hour blocks with a bunch of co-hosts. And I'm curious what you think about that. In my mind, it's like, sure, why not? Uh, because, you know, a lot of cable's money mostly just comes from primetime and morning. And the daytime is like you're there for breaking news and put some good journalists in those slots for when breaking news happens. But what do you think about this? Well, you know, it's funny. You are the expert on this topic. So I'm actually, um, I, I want to turn the tables around momentarily, but I will tell you this anecdotally. I was uh, out the other day for lunch with a number of people who are in this industry and it was a busy news day in this industry. And this was actually the detail that uh, many of them found most fascinating, that the multi-three-hour block seemed like some sort of capitulation. It just seemed like blatant cost-cutting. Chris Licht made the point that this would be more kinetic, that people would be on their feet, it wouldn't be as anger-driven. But I think that may all be true, but it just it doesn't seem like any of these things are either ratings plays or are innovative new distribution plays. And also, interestingly, like part of the challenge here with CNN is economic. There are fewer viewers, there is fewer advertising money, and the streaming uh, play like obviously was a, a total disaster, not not Lick's fault. And then part of it is, you know, media narrative stuff. 
which means that people don't really get it. CNN seems less buzzy. It's less in our lives, et cetera, et cetera. The piece to me that um, is so interesting about this day side element is this seems like something he could have done on day one. Doing it nine months in, it seems like a not very interesting idea that was either like delayed or seemed like a compromise. And that's probably uh, not a good thing either. There's a reason in in your business, sir, why uh, why presidents always talk about the first hundred days. You know, you have you have a lot of latitude to like make a lot of big decisions, and in a corporate context, like that probably extends to your first year, of which he's obviously still in. But this seems like a sort of milk toast maneuver at a timeline that makes it even seem uh, a bit more milk toasty. I might take a somewhat contrary or different view than you were dealing on this. I agree with you. I mean, if this is a, a move that could have been made earlier, but I think we're overanalyzing it in terms of like grand strategy, business, whatever. Like dayside cable news has always been kind of filler when there's not breaking news. And then when breaking news happens, like a big deal, but it's not where the eyeballs are every day. It's not where the money is every day. You specifically on this podcast a while back mentioned the idea that maybe CNN will just turn into the BBC, which I think is fine. Might not like be a ratings magnet, but it's sort of a dry, sober, serious TV news <laughs> organization. And that's sort of what this lineup looks like. I mean, none of these anchors or hosts are ideological. Um, they're all really good reporters. Um, Dylan reported that John King might be moved out of the 12 p.m. slot for Dana Bash. I love both of them, but you know, I was a charter member of John King's Inside Politics show. I love that show. I hope he gets a, a cool role. I think the main things we need to be looking at with CNN are solving the primetime question. How do you get more people to watch? How do you find compelling journalists who are also personalities without being too like, you know, five alarm fire, Donald Trump's a maniac every day. And then like, what are their investments beyond linear going to be? Are they going to, how, what's their distributed content strategy going to look like? Is there going to be a streaming product? Can the morning show take off a little bit? And then, you know, big special events like that. That's also something that like we haven't really talked about very much, especially heading into a presidential cycle, at least on the Republican side next year. Mark Preston, my friend over there, runs all the special program and events. And he's like been in charge of like booking those big town halls that were ratings magnets back in 2019 and 2020 during the presidential campaign. Those will be big money makers for the network. And so as long as the day side to me is filled with like people I like and respect, like I'm fine with that because I, I just don't think the expectation is that a lot of eyeballs are going to be tuning in to those hours anyway. I think Dylan put in his piece that CNN daytime has averaged just over 120,000 viewers in the 25 to 50 year old demo in 2022. I mean, that's like very low, but it's also like that. I don't know. It's just it's always going to be kind of low. And then in terms of format and innovation. Yeah, I mean more anchors instead of a single anchor. Maybe that'll make it more dynamic. Um, they'll be standing instead of sitting. I mean, that's not a new thing. I mean, I was there when the Situation Room launched on CNN and part of our bit was that Wolf would be standing in front of the big wall of video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was 2005. So, you know, there's just like a limitation on how much you can change the format. It's clear from like Lick's experience doing Morning Joe and then CBS This Morning, the group setting like on a set is something they enjoy and think is good. And I do too. So I'm fine with it. Um, I just don't think we should invest too much analysis on the day side stuff. It's funny when I was, I closed my eyes and I could just hear David Zaslov coming out of your mouth. Uh, you're, you're unquestionably, <laughs> you're unquestionably right in, um, in a lot of ways. No, but why, why, um, 
If those are the numbers and they're going to probably go down more than they are going to go up, why would you make this more expensive? You should be managing this to decline. Where it gets tricky, you know, is that media is a business that's built around the, the talents of talented people and managing them effectively and optimizing them for, for cash flow. If that's the move there, I, I still think that there are uh, concerns inside and outside the building about figuring out, well, where? What should be the next thing? CNN Plus was, was clearly, uh, we have friends who disagree about this, but in, in my mind, it was, it was a, a non-starter of an idea. It was never going to take. The beta version of it was a really too expensive gamble. But it was at least an attempt to figure out the next thing. The knock on a lot of these moves is they, they seem like wind downs and we do not see what the next thing is. And, you know, and I don't mean this cynically at all because I have so much respect for David Zaslov and, and what, what's happening at the kind of the master brand level here. When I go through these logical wormholes, the, I always end up at the same place, which is this is all one big deal away from making sense. Warner Brothers Discovery actually is having a pretty good 2023. Stocks up close to between 50 and 20%, depending on which day you listen to the show. So Wall Street is, uh, is, is singing to this tune of um, less expensive content costs and pushing the fees onto the consumer a little bit. And I imagine that, um, you know, there, there is another deal down the line. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what, what the deal structure is. I don't know which companies it's going to be with. Maybe all of this value will be unlocked when Warner Brothers Discovery is the key anchor of um, a Warner Brothers Discovery NBCU or a Warner Brothers Discovery Paramount Plus or whatever. And that maybe um, at that point, the distribution that a merger brings allows CNN more monetization opportunities. Perhaps they're biding time until that happens. But uh, again, this requires a lot of uh, hypothesizing. And I'm not Nelson Pels. I don't have a billion dollars just to throw <laughs> into this and say, um, hey, uh, hey, David, will you take my advice here? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the takeaway here from our conversation is the next big development or update in cable news will be some deal thing, but the format hasn't evolved in really in like thirty years. So I, I just don't see there being like a big what's next for CNN, MSNBC, or Fox in terms of what you see on the screen on the TV box and like that. You know, you can move pieces around and change fonts and change lower thirds and bring in an extra jib camera. But like it, it fundamentally, like the product is the product and it's just hard to make any drastic changes outside of really compelling personalities and talent. So that, again, seems to be like the biggest challenge there. John, are you uh, doing a dry January or no? Um, you know, um, <laughs> I'm not. I believe that everything is enjoyable in moderation. In fact, I, I'm going to use this final moment to, to pass on, a, since it's Media Monday, a story I, um, I heard once. I had, I had lunch years ago with a truly like legend-level editor in the book business, and I asked him, do you still like guys have these lunches where you have to take the writers out and, and everyone gets kind of sloshed? And he said, no, I, I don't do that, not because I'm against it, but because like, one of the joys of being in adulthood is being able to like, you know, have your first drink at whatever, six or seven o'clock and not have, not have uh, ruined it all by, um, by getting hammered at lunch. And I thought, you know what? This is a guy who knows something <laughs> oh about <my> life here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so wow. no, I'm not, I'm not Peter. Um, I'm not, but, uh, but I have um, immense respect for those who do. Sure. Sure. Whatever, man. Um, okay, cool. <laughs> have a great week. I'll see you in Slack. Later, buddy. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.